Hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You're just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth is next. Are you still trying to find ways to get into the world of crypto? Well, look no further. BitBuy is Canada's number one platform for buying and selling Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. BitBuy has launched a brand new app and website with a new look, lower fees, and new coins. BitBuy is your one-stop shop to get involved and super easy to use for beginners. Visit bitbuy.ca or download the BitBuy app. Enter referral code PODCAST20 to get $20 free when you make your first deposit. And hello there once again, Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto for uh, this week. Bruce Anderson is in his regular spot in Ottawa. Good morning to you. Good morning, Peter. Wow, you sound energetic. I got a lot of energy. I just, uh, there's so much sun and it's just beaming down on the radish patch <laughs> and the arugula is starting to show up. And everybody's just feeling better about the way that the the eating is going to be come August, I guess. I, I don't, I'm new at this, so I don't really want to predict it. But that's well, it I is think. hot out there, man. It was like 28 degrees or something yesterday in uh, in southern Ontario. You guys up north, I don't know how it got to, where it well, got to in good. Ottawa. It's pretty good. It's that's pretty great. Good. Across the river, we can see people golfing. I don't know about you, but we can see people golfing across the river. You go right down to the edge of the Ottawa River and look across. It's yeah. happening over there. Well, let's not talk about that. All right. I got a I got a, a note from my friend Lauren Rubenstein from the you know, one of the best golf writers in the world, right? He's Canadian. And a hell of a golfer. And a hell of a golfer, which is really not fair. The combination of both is 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 not right. No one person should have both those qualities. Uh, anyway, um, Lauren and I were back and forth making making hay out of the Ontario situation of no golf, the only place in North America, perhaps in the world. The head of the golf associations in the United States wrote a wrote a letter to Doug Ford saying, "Hello, like, don't you get it? Don't you understand what happens with golf?" Um. <laughs> Anyway, it's just, and I, also the, you know, people are starting to say, hey, Doug, you know, you're kind of base supporter. Many of them are golfers. <laughs> Do you think they're happy? His whole thing, I know we're not going to go way down the rabbit hole of, uh, of no. Ford and golf, but, but his whole thing, which is that you, you know, he doesn't think that everybody else should be able to golf because if his buddies went golfing, they would have a couple of quote pops after the game. I don't know um, if he's been around these golf clubs, but even when they had any kind of activity going on, the bars are closed. The restaurants are closed. There's no, would you like to stop for a pop? It's uh, you come, you play, you leave. That's it. So maybe they're carrying around beers in their trunks or something like that, and they might have one in the parking lot, but that's not the problem that the rest of us should have to endure, it seems to me, anyway. Yeah, I agree. Listen, before we get started, I want to give a, a heads up to uh, one of our listeners. Uh, his name is Alex Levy, um, and he's a young guy. But he, he has this whole idea that there should be, there should be merchandise for the bridge, mm. and especially for, uh, for smoke, mirrors, and the truth. 
and he dummied up. I, you know, I, obviously I can't show it on, on, on radio, but you get the picture. You've all seen those four dummies books and he's got a great one here. Radish farming for dummies by Bruce Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. But he's got a, he's got a, a, a number of selections here. The possibilities for merchandise for the bridge that would probably be a big seller because people want to get into it. And now you've already got volume two in the works. Radish farming or not uh, asparagus farming? Was it asparagus is, you said? No, arugula. 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 Yeah, arugula for dummies. Yeah, I like. The I think it's uh, this is a great idea. Uh, like this is the, the, later summer. We're going to have some fun with. Uh, with the actual product and the marketing. And we should reach out to this fellow and see what he has to say and, and some more ideas on offer. All right. Okay. Let's get started on uh, vaccines. Cause I be, you know, I occasionally, when I'm like really bored, I follow your Twitter thread. Yes. And uh, I've, it's been interesting watching you get into a little back and forth with, uh, I guess it's one <laughs> of the NDP members about, yeah. um, about where we are positioned, as you, as our listeners know, for and take part in the debate surrounding this issue of whether or not, or how badly we are off compared with the Americans. Now we all know, in terms of sickness and death, and there's no contest. It's just a terrible situation in the last year and a few months in the U.S. Bad enough here in Canada, but not on that level. However, the mm. issue of vaccines, there is no question that the Americans came out of the gate fast on vaccines. They were responsible in many ways for the development of vaccines. Um, and the assumption has always been that we're way behind in the rollout of vaccines. And it actually, like so many things that involve numbers, it depends how you look at numbers and what mm. kind of take you take on the numbers. And so there's clearly a difference between the number who have at least had some vaccination, in other words, at least one dose, and those who've had two doses, the fully vaccinated ones. Um, the Americans are doing well on that. So I think somewhere around 30, 30% yeah. plus on, the, yeah. on, on two vaccines. Um, the UK are up, you know, close to, uh, I, I think, just over 50% on the two-dose vaccines. Um, Canada, can, no, sorry, around 40% on the two-dose for the UK. Canada's way back, 4%, because we've had a policy of one dose, and later you'll get your second dose. Um, but however, on the one, day, uh, one dose, at least partially vaccinated, and partially vaccinated is a good deal, right? I mean, you're somewhere in 80 85% protected. Um, Canada is right at the point of passing the U.S., around 50%, 48-50%. The Brits are a little ahead of both. They're around 55. Mm -hmm. um, but still, you're back and forth, and you, at, you ask a key question when you're trying to decide between what those two things is or are and how you relate to them. So tell me where you're going. Yeah, look, I, I think it's been an interesting thing to watch just if we can separate ourselves from the kind of the emotion and the, and the real actual health risk of um, the, the pandemic and, and the issues around vaccination and just watch the way that the politics and the coverage of the vaccination choices by the government have 
kind of played themselves out. I mean, in the first instance, we had opponents of the government, critics of the government saying, this is terrible. We don't have any domestic manufacturing capacity. We're reliant on others. We're not going to get enough vaccines. We're not going to be able to vaccinate everybody uh, until sometime next year. Mexico is going to have more vaccines than us. There are all kinds of things that were kind of thrown at the government. And, and you, you know, I, I think in some respects, that's the way the system should work. There should be pressure brought to bear by people who say, here's a need. What are you going to do about it? Um, and so the government uh, took the strategy of saying, we're going to order multiple vaccines, a mixed portfolio, because we don't know at this point which ones are going to turn out to be most effective, how many of any of them we're going to be able to get because everybody in the world wants to get them. And so we're going to order a whole bunch of different kinds of vaccines, and that's the way that we're going to we're going to deal with this. Now, the next, and, and as far as I'm concerned, and other people might have a different point of view, but we've got more than 100 million vaccine doses on order for delivery this year. That's a pretty big number for a country with 37 million people. Then the next choice that the government made was, do we follow the suggestion by some of the manufacturers that first dose and second dose happen within a relatively short period of time? Or do we talk to the scientific experts and ask them what they think will be the effect of lengthening that period of time? And on the basis of knowing how many doses we were having, realizing that there was a high degree of uh, protection afforded by that first dose, and wanting the country to get back to normal before too much more time had passed, governments, not just the federal government, but the provincial governments accepted the recommendation that you could lengthen the period of time between the first and the second dose. So here's the situation that we see today, Peter, that you've alluded to. And there are different data sources, but I rely on the one um, that is on the web called Our World in Data, and it's managed and produced by Oxford University, pretty reputable organization, I think. And when we look at percentage of the population with first doses, what's happening in the United States is that it rose pretty quickly, and then it really started to taper off. And it's growing at a much, much slower rate than what's happening in Canada. Canada right now is a bit of a rocket ship upwards. Some like to use the expression hockey stick, because I guess it's our national game. And good luck to the Leafs against the Habs tomorrow, by the way. I don't like your chances. But anyway, <laughs> back to vaccines. Uh, Canada is less than a percentage point behind the U.S. today. And we've been closing fast. And today will probably be the day, if not today, then tomorrow, that we have more people with at least some uh, vaccine in them. And so on the weekend, uh, this uh, MP from um, the NDP was tweeting about how Canada was so far behind the U.S. in second doses. Uh, I sort of felt like I, I wanted to ask him the question, are you suggesting that the country should have taken a different approach, that we should have taken the approach of the United States? and really kept a lot of people from getting that first dose in order to get more people uh, fully vaccinated. Uh, that's a choice that people can argue for, but he didn't then want to argue for that choice. He backed off that point. And I think that's a critically important point because when I think about what makes me feel safe based on the evidence as I read it, I'd rather be in a country where in a little bit a period of time we have 75% of the population or more with at least one dose then live in a country where there might be 40% who have none in them and won't 
And, and a lot of those people say they won't take it. So there's a lot more hesitancy in the United States and they're running into that. There's a lot more acceptance and demand in Canada. And that's a good thing for us. And it also feels to me like we're going to, um, that the government's bet, I guess, on this strategy of first dose and then second dose when we get the vaccines, uh, that might well work out uh, really good from the standpoint of both protection and accelerated timetables to getting those second doses. Anyway, here's hoping, and today could be a really good day for Canadian optimists who like to look at our line relative to that U.S. line. You know, one of the things that, um, as you were setting that up, that you didn't include, and, and I think it was just, it wasn't deliberate or, or anything. I think it was just, it, it is something to keep in mind that the American advantage early on um, was that they were actually developing the vaccines in their own country, right? I mean, they yeah. have the manufacturing out of it there. In fact, we need to depend on it in some cases to have the shipments uh, made from the U.S. to Canada uh, in terms of the purchases that were made. So they, on the one hand, that you know that, that was clearly an advantage for them, a disadvantage for Canada, and that Canada had to find a way of overcoming that. And, you know, you're quite right. They, they, they went around the field. They didn't buy from everyone. They didn't buy from the Russians. Their deal with the Chinese kind of fell through. Um, but so they did go elsewhere and sign contracts. And you can argue about what the timetables were on those contracts, but they did sign contracts. And this is before any vaccine had been developed. So it was a gamble at that point. It seems that they gambled well in what they went for. Uh, but nevertheless, it got off to a slower start, obviously, than the Americans did. But you're quite right. The numbers on first dose uh, suggest or clearly indicate that we've, we've caught up. Now, here's the question, though, that, that I ask you, because I think your question is really good. And it obviously blunted the, um, the criticism, if you will, or the questioning on the part of the NDP member. But here's my question. If we're... It doesn't feel like we're catching up. I mean, what it feels like is when you when you watch television, you see the reports. Uh, we're into you know deep sport mode now. You, know, you got baseball, you got the hockey playoffs, you got the NBA playoffs, and there are people in the stands. They're not full, but you know they're they're giving a certain uh, amount of seats uh, available to fans. And it's, there's this sense in the U.S. that things are coming back, and they're coming back in a hurry. Broadway's opening. They'll start rehearsal soon. I don't think they actually open till September, but, you know, it takes a while to get organized on, on stuff like that at theater. Restaurants are open. New York's opening up. So we're looking south of the border. Things are opening up, and here they're still locked down. And they may be locked down for a little while yet. So that is that that's a legitimate way of looking at the two countries and saying they're they're ahead of us. They're quite a bit ahead of us. Now, maybe they're irresponsibly ahead of us. We'll find that out in a hurry. But they are ahead of us. They look different than we are, and of course the border's closed. So all those things. Yeah. You know, make you tend to have you look at this from a different perspective. I suppose I I I think it really does come down to um, cup half full, cup half empty mindset, and the fact that 
whatever our natural tendencies are as individuals, the pandemic is kind of turbocharging them, right? So, so if there's a bad day and there's some bad news stories and you're inclined to kind of be beaten down by the pandemic, you're going to go, this will never be over. This is going to be miserable for a long period of time. And if on the other hand, you're, um, and I'm not see, suggesting that's you, Peter. In fact, I know it's not you, but for me, every every tiny sound of good news on this, I grab onto it. I run around with it for half the day until it gets, you know, the hope gets beaten out of me by the world around me. And then I forget <laughs> about it. And I hope for some more good news next, uh, next morning. But right now I see good news everywhere. I'm reading about EU countries reopening their borders saying you can travel here if you're fully vaccinated. And I say fully vaccinated doesn't make me wonder why we're not fully vaccinated. It makes me remind, it reminds me that we're going to be pretty soon. And 10 minutes can feel like 10 years in pandemic time, but it can also, you know, I can look at what I think is the next several months and say, we're going to be done this if we play it right, if we play it safe. Um, maybe the Americans will be safe too. I hope they are. Um, but at every possible instance, they've moved more quickly to relax uh, restrictions or to not even follow them. And we've been more careful and we've lost a lot fewer people. Um, and so while we can say it's taking forever here, it feels painful, it feels restrictive, Um, Our population has consistently chosen a safer, more responsible course, I would say. Um, And and that's got a lot to do with our culture. It's not because politicians order us to do this. That obviously has an effect. But we continue to err on the side, and our polling shows it every single week. You ask people, should we have more restrictions or less? There's two saying we should have more for every one saying we have less. We should have less. So I see lots of hopeful news. And when I talked to a client of mine in the United States yesterday and he said, you know what, Fenway Park is going to reopen for all fans in May, I felt good about that. It makes me feel, okay, this is going to happen here at some point too. And I hope it's safe for those people and and and, um, and that that becomes a another benchmark in the, in the trek towards getting out of this situation. I'm sure the Red Sox would love Fenway Park to be open and host the Blue Jays after they got absolutely hammered. Their best pitcher got absolutely hammered by the young Blue Jays last night, 8 nothing. This Toronto team looks for real. Now, I know I say that about all sports all the really time, yeah. but uh, I watched that game. It was it was quite something. Um, just one quick comment on, on time, the, the movement of time, as you suggest. I, I found this last year in a bit, fascinating because the clock seemed to move so slowly at the beginning so slowly you can count each day endlessly um now it really does at least to me it feels like it's moving very fast and it's moving very fast towards a conclusion that we're all going to like and fingers crossed that it 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 turns out that way um yeah but there's uh, there's 
there, it's funny about time because it, it, it does yeah. shift around like that. And, you know, obviously it's all going at the same rate, but last uh, it year it was moving way. like your last year it was moving like your backswing. And this year it's moving <laughs> like your downswing. <laughs> and we got to kind of control our enthusiasm a little bit right now, but I feel pretty good about the way the summer and the fall is going to play out. And I, I hope everybody stays safe between now and then. Okay, we're going to take a, a, a quick break, a music break, as we like to say, and then we'll be back with a familiar name in Canadian politics. Peter Mansbridge back in Toronto. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. There's a smoke, mirrors, and the truth on the bridge. And um, some comments now on... As I said, a familiar name in Canadian politics. His grandfather, David Lewis, was the leader of the federal MP, NDP and uh, made quite the mark, especially in that 72-74 uh, almost coalition government with the Pierre Trudeau Liberals. It wasn't a coalition, but at least it wasn't officially. Uh, but they, you know, it was some uh, movement, and we can credit David Lewis with some of the social policy that, that we take advantage of today. Um, his son, Stephen Lewis, was the leader of the Ontario NDP and made his mark there and was a, uh, uh, and remains today a, a terrific uh, person in terms of speaking out on, on public policy issues. He was also Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, a Brian Mulroney appointment in the uh, mid-80s. And now uh, his son, David Lewis's grandson, Avi Lewis, has decided he's going to run federally for the NDP in British Columbia. And who knows where that may end up leading. But Avi Lewis is no stranger to having an impact on Canadian politics and especially an impact on the federal NDP. Uh, so don't expect to just sort of hear about Avi Lewis when he's going through the nomination process and then not hear about him again. You're probably going to hear about him a lot. Uh, on a lot of fronts. He's going to be uh, an interesting person to watch. Um, controversial at times, uh, energetic always. Uh, he'll, be, uh, he'll be a fascinating player in the, uh, in the political picture in terms of this country and certainly within the NDP. Your thoughts on, uh, on Avi Lewis? Well, I think he's a very, very smart individual. I think he's extremely articulate. I think he knows how to communicate extraordinarily well. And so we definitely got star candidate um, appeal for the NDP. I think the, you know, I was reading what he said when he was announcing his candidacy, and he said this is going to be a hard riding to win. The NDP finished fourth there in the last election. And um, while he has a house there, he hasn't lived there for a little while. I think he's back there now. And, and, um, but I don't think the fact that he hasn't lived there is necessarily going to be a barrier. I think the fact that he's got roots there, that he's got a house there, that he's kind of determined to get to know the people in the riding, that's what people generally want to know. And people can come from that kind of a context um, and win a riding, especially if they have his communication skill set and and a name that people recognize. So I think he's a, he's a very interesting entry into the Canadian political marketplace. And I think he's, I, I think it's good uh, when people of his accomplishment and stature and mindset and intellect, get into politics, whatever party. I, I think that there could be some challenges for him and for the NDP. Um, 
when I was going back this morning, thinking about this conversation that we were going to have, I went back to the Leap Manifesto, which was a an initiative that he and and other people started and led, which had a a pretty dramatic impact on the NDP and and a less dramatic impact on the Canadian body politic um, a few years ago. It was um, purposefully described as being a kind of a radical shift, uh, saying that we really need to confront this climate change crisis and we need to transform so many of the things that we do. And well, I think a lot of people looked at it and said the agenda is in the right direction and the sense of urgency is appropriate. Uh, other people looked at it and said some of the ideas are just too, um, would be too draconian in their impact on some people. Um, and not enough care was given to understanding that there are people who live in different parts of the country who experience a different economy and who would feel kind of um, dislocated or fearful and disinclined to support this kind of agenda. It caused a lot of problems um, for Tom Mulcair, um, who sure was trying did. to build on Jack Layton's coalition that was a more broad-based coalition that the NDP had enjoyed before, because here was a policy initiative that in effect was saying, and it wasn't deliberate, it wasn't clearly stated this way, but in effect it was saying the NDP is too timid, but we need a more radical NDP. Now, there will always be people in the NDP who feel that way, Um, but those people always represent a challenge for a party leader who's trying to build a little bit bigger base of, of support and more seats. And, and that's, that's Jagmeet Singh's uh, challenge as well. The last thing I'll say is that a lot of the, the language in the leap manifesto was really about fossil fuels are the enemy and we need to really get off that. And again, there's, there are people who feel that in Canada, but the conversation of only a few years ago is a different conversation than the country's having right now. Um, people aren't really thinking that fossil fuels will hang on forever. They're really just saying, how long will it be before e-vehicles are the majority, uh, where we're transitioning to cheaper solar and wind energy, where we're introducing hydrogen so there is uh, almost 78%, I think, in our latest survey of the Canadian public who say this transition is happening. It's not, um, and it's accelerating. So the rhetoric and the ideas of only a few years ago can look a little bit anachronistic right now. And so uh, it remains to be seen, Sir Lewis talks up the LEAP manifesto or tries to support a little bit kind of Um, of a revamped version uh, of a Green New Deal for Canada uh, and how that relates to the success of Mr. Singh and also uh, more particularly maybe to uh, Rachel Notley's efforts to win government again in Alberta, uh, where a lot of Albertans are saying, we're not sure that Jason Kenney was the right choice. We're not sure that turfing Rachel Notley was the right choice. And so anything like Abby Lewis of a few years ago, uh, becoming uh, a notorious voice or a really important voice in the NDP of today does pose some challenges for her too, potentially. A couple of points. Um, you're right, and the NDP does have a tradition that goes back decades where there's always been this, uh, you know, a portion of the party that is arguing for greater change and faster change um, on the left side of the party. And in, you know, Quite frankly, most parties have those kind of situations within them, a a portion of the party that's arguing for 
more, I mean, the conser- we'll just watch the conservatives. You know, they, they, there is often, as there is now, a portion of that party that's on the um, right, far right of the center of that party who are positioning and arguing for a different kind of change. Um, so that is kind of traditional, but there's also, there's a whole thing about timing, right? When Avi Lewis came out with that manifesto, as you said, it presented real problems for Tom Mulcair, not the least of which was not what was in the manifesto, but it was the timing of the manifesto. Manifesto. He dropped it, what, a week or two weeks before um, a party convention that was going to vote on Tom Mulcair's leadership and whether or not there should be a review and a new vote. And it was just a mess for him. He kind of said the wrong things at the wrong time in reacting to the manifesto. And mm-hmm. uh, the next thing you knew, he'd lost the leadership. Yeah. So one has to look at Avi Lewis. I, I think one has to look at Avi Lewis in more ways than just simply policy. Um, given his family tradition in leadership, uh, one assumes it can't not be at least partly on his mind in terms of his strategy right now. I mean, uh, Jagmeet Singh is clearly the leader of the NDP right now, and he's had a lot of good press and this, that, and the other thing over his term as leader. But there's an election coming up. And if he's still in fourth place after the election, people are going to be asking questions, especially if there's a bright young guy, you know, having just won a seat in B.C., yeah, I think that's true. But then every once in a while, I remind myself that um, a lack of performance in the NDP has not always been, um, has not always resulted in as much of a push um, uh, for the leaders to get out, to leave, um, as it does in some other parties. Um, you and I can both remember multiple party leaders of the NDP federally, some provincially, some might make the case that Andrea Horwath has, has kind of underperformed the opportunity in Ontario. And there doesn't ever seem to be a, a real kind of buildup of pressure to change leaders. So it's possible that Jagmeet Singh, who's generally relatively popular in the country, um, could have another not spectacular outing and not face that kind of pressure. I, I, th- I think the bigger challenge for the NDP kind of comes in the when we look at the sources of their political energy in the past, uh, there was a feminist aspect to it. There was an environmental aspect to it. There was an organized labor aspect to it. Um, when I look at organized labor now, um, a lot of those organizations, uh, they're not liberals, but they see in the liberal agenda a lot that they can support. Um, a lot of the workers who are members of those unions aren't anti-capitalist. They're not looking to take down the companies that they that their members work for. They're looking to continue to strengthen the benefits uh, that their workers have, the protections that their workers have. So I think that has become a, a weaker source of energy for the NDP. I think on the feminist question, um, this is a federal government that to some eyes anyway, has been uh, as feminist a government as we've ever had. And so that's robbed a little bit of the energy. And I think the fact that there's a Green Party, as well as um, a federal government that's kind of embraced a fairly ambitious agenda on climate change, 
also weakens that. So ultimately, the NDP needs to figure out what it is that they're going to run on the basis of. Is it radical or is it a better version of a more center-left agenda? And within that um, question, what are the specific ideas? And of course, the big risk for them always is that they say, we'll eliminate student debt. There's really nothing stopping the liberals from saying, by the way, we'll do that too. And we'll probably win this election if, uh, if you vote for us. Um, and the NDP can't, um, can't make that happen. Wouldn't be the first time the liberals have, uh, stolen something off the NDP platform. That's going to, you know, they hope will work to their advantage. There's kind of a history of that over the last half century, really. Um, Mm -hmm. okay. Good discussion as always. A reminder that tomorrow. You're pretty uh, nervous about tomorrow, right? Tomorrow is the opening game in that series, the Habs Leafs. I, you know, I'll be honest. I am nervous about it. And I don't think this city uh, takes it seriously enough. They think they're going to walk, have a walk in the park with Montreal. Mm. Uh, they're going to get out on the ice. They're going to see those stunning uh, colors that the Habs wear, which are easily the best uniform ever created for any sports team <laughs> anywhere. I'm not era. worried about the colors. I'm more, I'm more worried right? about looking up uh, when you're in the Montreal arena, which won't be till game three, looking up and Terrifying. seeing those banners hanging from the rafters. Banners. You know, like you can hardly see it. anything but all the banners. No, oh, I know. It's, it's crazy. They, I mean, I'm loving the fact that two teams are playing each other, and I hope it's going to be good hockey as, and, and as exciting hockey as we've witnessed in some of the games so far. But I think either side, if they assume anything, they're they're wrong. Uh, I think it's it's wide open. You know, playoffs are the playoffs. Things can happen. Uh, you were going to say hot. something else about tomorrow, something that was less about hockey and more about what? Hey, you started it. You got me going. Even CBC Sports asked me to do a to write a little thing for them, and I think it's out today on the CBC. If the Habs Sports. win, Sports. will you sing the Canadian song? I could teach you the words. I grew up with it when I was in Valleyfield. It's a it's a nice little melody. It's pretty easy to sing. I know you've got like more of a no. William Shatner singing voice. It's a more of a talky. If the Habs win, thing. but it Habs, would be pretty if, cool if you would do that. If the Habs win, we'll be talking about cricket because <laughs> I'll be moving my allegiances like to another. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be moving my sports allegiance to another area. Anyway, look forward to that. But also look forward to tomorrow before the big game is uh, actually our final episode of Good Talk with Chantelle Bear joining us for uh, this season. We're going to take a hiatus of, of, of some sort. Uh, we want to protect ourselves to get back um, in time for uh, lots of additions around the election whenever that comes. So tomorrow will be the last one for a while. Uh, and that's just on Sirius XM. Um so you can find that on channel 167 of Sirius XM. It's uh, free right now if you uh, um, sign on online at uh, SiriusXM.ca slash Peter Mansbridge. Um, that's tomorrow, 5 o'clock Eastern. But at noon tomorrow, the bridge is back, as it always is. Bruce, thanks very much for Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on this uh, on this day. Good conversation. Get back out there on the back Peter. 40. And we'll uh, we will talk again soon. Um, See you again in 24 hours.